Well, welcome to um, the Off Bike Cultural Coach to Advance um, uh, podcast. This is the uh, second time we do this recording for, because the first time we just, yeah, it didn't work. And that's what happens when you get an art historian and anthropologist trying to do a podcast, right, David? <laughs> yeah, I shouldn't have left it in your hands. You need a you need an ex-cyclist tech geek. <laughs> so, so here we go again. And, and we want to talk about the first four four or five stages which happened in Brittany and sort of what's the culture there and what's going on what would be interesting to look at and so on we have various things we want to talk about and Tim can you kick, it up, kick us off I can you know I, I kind of always come to Brittany with Gauguin's imagery in mind but at the same time when I was watching the footage over the last four or five days I really kept on seeing glimpses of Gauguin's paintings I mean there are two images that stick to mind one involves um, Christ on the cross with an undulating Breton landscape in the background with three Breton women in those distinctive headdresses in the foreground and it's Gauguin's face so the yellow Christ as it's called so here's Gauguin empathizing with himself there's the whole rich spiritual tradition of Brittany layered on this kind of pagan landscape but the idea of a man who sees himself as kind of victim because it's Gauguin's face in yellow has some resonance for the Tour de France and then there's a green Christ uh, also Tour de France resonance but with a Gauguin figure dead uh, held by these ghostly women with another undulating landscape going down to the sea um, the seaweed harvesters pulling the uh, the seaweed in you can almost smell the kelp a Breton woman in the foreground and so it's the landscape that the cyclists were traversing that I just kept on seeing footage of, but also this idea of people from the outside coming to Brittany, having that kind of feel and this primitive elemental force to it that the cyclists again seemed attuned to when we're cutting through. What, Tim, just a quick one on this because I'll be the layman on this one. What is the the, the position of Gauguin in, in art history and, and what's his connection to Brittany? Well, his position is increasingly problematic and contested because he ended up in the South Seas. He died in the Marquesa Islands and had exploitative sexual relations with girls who, were, by the standards of our world, are um, underage. So it's a contested relationship that he has now with our history. And there's a kind of revisionist um, approach to him. But he is seen, quite rightly, as one of the major post-impressionists. And he is he is seen as, as one of the driving forces in looking for a kind of primitive reworking of Western painting. And Brittany is the nearest faraway place. It's the place in France that he sees most obviously as this other. I mean, he ends up, as I say, in the South Seas and he, he was born in France, but he, he spent his, some of his childhood in Peru, where his, his mother was from. And he married a Dane, funnily enough. So he's got a real cultural breadth. But... Um, but he is the he is the leader of this of this artist colony that's that's founded in the 1860s. But he goes there in the 1880s, and other artists like Emile Bernard, Paul Zerouzier, and others go there, and it puts Brittany on the modernist map in terms of painting, and it still has that kind of status. But interestingly enough, after Gauguin and after that um, uh, um, th that colony sort of subsided, others stayed there, and it became more marginalised, I suppose, which is. Brittany has this proud tradition, doesn't it, of literally being on the margins, loving that, but at the same time, um, it moves centre stage and then moves back to the margins again. Yeah, it's interesting. But do you know when did he live here? There, do you know that? 
Yeah, eighteen in the in the eight in the sixty sorry in the eighteen eighties he comes there in eighty eight he comes again eighty nine he goes to the South Seas then comes back to Brittany um, the, the the paintings I describe are eighteen eighty nine he comes back for one last time uh, in the early eighteen nineties and then goes off again to the South Seas and he, he never returns he's there for ten years so he often spends summer into winter in Brittany. Um, but he's 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 peripatetic, you know. Gauguin is there's a kind of restlessness to him that I mean he was in the he was in the uh, French Navy in in, um, in the Merchant Navy as a young man and then became a stockbroker uh, and spent some time in really yeah he did yeah yeah and but also then when he gave up that with the stock market crash he ended up flogging tarpaulin I think so it, you know he was a man who rolled his sleeves up and did everything and Van Gogh wanted him to go to the south to set up a studio in the south in Arles. Van Gogh was dazzled by the light down there and they famously fell out. They had completely diametrically opposed views about what art was. I mean, Gauguin was for the imagination and those flattened, saturated colours, but his was the interest in the elemental force that he, he found in places like Brittany, but only in Brittany, and then that drove him to the South Seas. Whereas Van Gogh was 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 wanted to look at the you know the, the light and this kind of celebration of the effects of nature. Sorry, Tim, that's been something that elemental kind of force in all the shots in those first few days over Brittany it was just the, the beauty of the landscape and 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 kind of how unique it is it, it does as you say it seems like it's on the fringe it's it kind of scrapes sort of scrapes its way into the Atlantic and it's I think it's that that's what I found interesting about that scenery was the kind of the almost primordial nature to it and it's that that contrast between, as you're saying, between Gauguin and 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 that kind of idea about that art movement in the south of France and the modernism, etc., in Paris and the surrealism, and yet he chose Brittany, which is it's got some of the oldest remnants of civilization in in the world there, as well as the landscape. Yeah, let's just talk about those because um, I think you could see it from the race the sort of ancient Druid stones, the Karnak stones, which are surrounded by so much mystery. Do you know what they are, Tim, those stones? Anyone knows what... <laughs> there's many people who claim to know. I mean, they're clearly... It's clearly a, a memorial site, and it's clearly a site of ritual, ancient, and actually probably culturally layered. One of the problems is we know they're about 3,500 years old, but we don't know what use they were put to 2,000 years ago or 1,000 years ago. And so you get this kind of layering that we're talking about in the landscape. I think the most profound thing for me about them, I mean, the configurations are sometimes circular, sometimes army-like or military-like, and they're fanned formations as well as lines. But they're clearly a collection of sites as much as they are a collection of stones. So there are multiple sites there. And I think that sense of atavistic connection with ancestry is so obvious there, but it... it it Karnak feels to me not like something apart from Brittany in a way that when you go to Stonehenge and okay let's admit Avebury nearby there's a connection but you feel it stands out in the landscape but it's it's remote from everything else I always feel with with Karnak that it's it, it's it, it's a reflection of you know a lot else that's happened in is happening in Brittany you never feel far from I mean literally you feel that underneath the surface of the landscape in Brittany there's this kind of primordial elemental force that's more revealed in places like Karnak. Yeah, absolutely. And also, I think when you go to the coast and you look at those dramatic rocks and all of that, and it just feels um, like modern civilization is just traveling through, in a way. I mean, you can still feel ancient history there, right? 
Yeah, but when the when the race went through there, David, I I was looking out for Karnak, and it it, it did I didn't see it on the live footage that that was was available to us, and then Geraint Thomas crashed, and it couldn't have been that far away from me. I don't know exactly where the crash was. I think it was after, and but anyway, in my mind, I had this idea that they they were distracted by the um, the beauty and elemental mystery of Karnak, but obviously that's not the case. But was was the was the race obviously there through Karnak? Did did you see did you see the race go through close? Clo- by or was it in the distance yeah yeah we did actually got helicopter shots it, it wasn't on the live because it was quite early on in the stage but but we got to see it because we'd already been speaking about it so it's quite surreal that the military line bits as you said were just adjacent to a main road that almost cut through it and so you have the kind of the local houses and farmland next to it and people standing on them i mean that's that's what was really quite surreal about it is that they're they're not just part of the landscape they're, they're part of the culture around there kids play on them and whereas, you know, you have places like Stonehenge now, which are all fenced off, but, but the Karnak stones, it seems like quite a significant, I mean, obviously was, there were different, different parts. I think it was called something else, beginning with C, but all part of that thing. And I, that's what I found quite surprising. It's just everything's built around it and people, are, uh, kids play on them. And that was, that was really interesting because it just goes to show how embedded it is there. And I tried to look into, into it and, but, you know, I, I didn't get much smarter except one thing surprised me, which is apparently Druids still exist. That culture, that religion, uh, I don't even know if it's a religion, but it's, it's a culture, still exists. And uh, you can find various um, sort of almost sects around that. And apparently it's about being ha- having a balance between um, nature and your body and the surroundings. Of, so it's, it's not about God, but it's about being in balance um, uh, with nature and, and slowing sort of a slow culture movement so slow down if your if your knee hurts it's probably because you're going too fast etc so that's sort of healing culture they have so that's that's kind of interesting um, another thing Tim that we, we should just touch upon is the language yeah which is you'll tell us is distinct and there are dialects too but it, it is interesting that um, that Although I've talked about the art in terms of a sort of French-wide or European thrust, which is what modernism is, although to begin with, Impressionism, Post-Impressionism are kind of uh, owned by the French or emanate from France. Um, you do get the sense of people from outside coming to Brittany and actually Brittany affecting the visual language of artists. And I'm not just talking about Gauguin. I'm talking about even the rom- romantic painters who came before who wanted to sort of confront the elemental forces and those who remained. There's something about how Brittany's own uh, languages, cultural languages, in, in, inspire and start to impact on others when they're there. Yeah, I, I try to look into it because it's um, obviously the whole phenomenon of language in France is something not many people talk about, but it is an, an amazing story of how a nation was shaped by uniforming the language. I mean, there were, in a hundred years ago, French was a foreign language in France. Not many people know that. Most people didn't speak French. They spoke Catalan, spoke Catalan Provençal, Occitan, etc. And they had this. They had this. You know, you've probably heard it, patois, which means a dialect, and it means a peasant dialect. And it was ruled out in 1794. I read, uh, just um, you know, uh, after the French Revolution, where they everything was changed into French. 
and then you know armies were sent out to change the language locally everywhere in France. So schools were changed, books were changed, uh, timetables, museums, anything you could find that had a language, carried a language, would be um, in, in French. And it became sort of the modernist language. Um, and, um, and, 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 and then there was a, a, an interesting, um, a lot of stories about how particularly Breton was positioned as a shameful language. Uh, there's a, um, I found a story about a, um, a cartoon from Paris from the beginning of the 1800s where uh, called Bresseril, who is, I'll send the, 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 the pictures in the, in, the, in the notes, but she is like a mate from Breton that lives in Brittany, that lives in Paris, and she's portrayed with no mouth and no ears. And all the cartoon is about how she doesn't understand. She makes mistakes because she doesn't understand French, and she's ridiculed from, for that, right? So that's an example of how um, a language was sort of systematically ashamed. So it went from being, uh, just a, not long ago, a very common language to being something that only old people speak, and um, I, I think about 15% of the population speak nowadays. Yeah, it's, it's interesting with that for a couple of reasons, because I was just about to, just going back to the bigger thing on this, I was watching an interview, because we get France Television uh, on our feeds as well, which I can go and listen into, and and Marc Madio, who's a, an ex-professional cyclist, French, who now has been running Groupama FDJ for oh, 24 years, 25 years, and he's known as being this eccentric, passionate, over-the-top character. He's the sort of guy that screams at his riders and out of emotion, and he's just all over the place. It's brilliant. If you go and Google best moments of Marc Madio, it's just it's it's, it's co- comic but but brilliant but it, they did a little um like three or four minute piece with him because we went by through his hometown uh, i think uh, two days ago and he was talking about how much the tour de france meant to him and to to his village and when he'd first seen it when he was a kid and he said that since then he's learned that the tour de france it's it's the sporting event that's the closest to the land that that exists he says that it, it takes you through places, it takes you through regions that you wouldn't see, and you can't underestimate how much it means to each village, to each town, to have the Tour de France come near, because it puts them on the centre stage. It puts them on stage for a very brief moment, and it gives them a pride that otherwise they didn't even know they had. And he said that you learn more about, and he used the word la terre, um, and he said, he said, we're not built on sand, we're built on terre, which I guess is, is quite hard to translate um, that from French to, to English, because obviously the direct translation is ground. Uh, but it, he, the terre is something that has such a, a different and, and multifaceted meaning in, in French. And I wondered, actually, I asked both of you what your translation of the French idea of terre is, because that's what the, the Tour de France represents to, to the people there, because it, it gives them pride in their 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 land. Well, we we are soon. I think today we're going into Loire, right? The, which is the biggest uh, wine region, I guess. I guess it's the biggest wine region, and they use a something I, 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 a word I close to ter- terroir, mm. which means like, why does the wine taste? I think why does the wine taste the way it does? And this is well, it's the grape, it's the farmer, but then there's also terroir, which is it's from a specific place, and, and earth means a lot. So there's sort of an earthboundness, I guess, to the whole 
winemaking that probably because yeah i don't know about british would you would you would you have words that connect you to earth would you have like the ground well rooted we talk about being rooted and gogan not to bring it back to him but talked about um <laughs> the, the the sound that his clogs when his clogs hit the granite earth of of Brittany, that powerful muted sound was what he wanted to get in his painting so he understood intrinsically what mark madio is talking about and and there's a literalism isn't there in the tour de france that you are literally connected to the earth it's a very small amount that your tire is connected but nonetheless you are there there's a feeling of gliding but you're connected and the trajectory you you, you map you map france in a way that no other sport will let you do under your own steam because running you wouldn't be able to cover the distances and and under petrol or, or or electric or whatever else it might be it's not the same and that's a real profundity isn't it so it, it's both connect, trying to connect to the notion of being touching the earth or connected to the earth but actually trans transferring through it i think it's really really powerful um, but i think all societies have a sense of their connection connection to place but it does seem particularly profound in Britain. You know, you know the Breton words, dolmen, uh, sorry, well, the word dolmen that we talk about for t ancient tombs and many as stones, they're Breton words. And it's interesting that they have universal use, certainly in archaeological circles, and they're, they're related to these things that are stuck into and emanating from the earth. So there is, it, it's a very earthbound culture, I, I, in spite of its proximity to the sea, I think. And, and another thing I noted, Tim, and this is more sort of the ethnographic look at, at Brittany is this probably the region I guess it's the region in France with most connection to old tales folklore and things like that uh, coming back to Celtic culture and so on and it's still very much alive uh, you know Merlin the King Arthur and all of that and uh, even you know modern tales like Asterix and Obelix uh, the, the cartoon and, and which were the you know the gallons that f fought um, Rome, and um, and they lived in this village and they were a small village. And they could fight everybody, and that village actually does exist. It has a name, and you can find it in. We can do we can go there on our bikes actually if we want. But there's this connection to the past that is rare, I think. Yeah. Yeah, there is, but you know, it, I was thinking when David was talking about people on the stones at Karnak living it and the function of of past ritual and the tour de france is a really interesting ritual in and of itself annual and you know and and the gatherings of people and that kind of tribalism that you get in certain places dutch corner and so on but also um uh, uh, i was thinking that it has its own folklore and mythology david doesn't it and it gathers pace every year I mean, and, 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 yeah. and in a sense, that, it, that, that grows. And, and, and however yeah. much a university applied thing to France, uh, it still has this sense of, 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 of um, strong, deep folklore now, I think. Yeah, it's so true, because even what, what's interesting about Tour de France is it's, it's an accumulation of its past. And so there's, there are so many different narratives involved. I mean, even look what Mark Cavendish is doing at the moment. He's, he's making history with every pedal stroke right now but it's also even some of the images i see of we go through these these towns and the uh, vitre for example the other day which was beautiful uh it's a it's a, a an amazing gothic town and but there's photos of the race going through there 80 years ago 
and much of it is the same. They're black and white grimy photos with cyclists that bear no resemblance to cyclists of today. The people at the side of the road look like people from 80, 90 years ago. Obviously, it's quite peasants and the buildings, is more. they look a bit more rugged, but they're the same. And there's something really quite um, uh, beautiful about that, that the race keeps on going through. The certain parts stay the same. And that's one of the most amazing things about France is that Vitré, that the, the Chateau de Vitré was built in the 1100s and the, how it is today was completed in the 1300s. And the Tour de France only started going by there in the early 1900s. And yet it's still there and the race keeps going by these places and you keep seeing these pictures and the people change, they come and go and, and yet the race carries on and the place does pretty much stay the same. And I think there's, that is what's fundamentally romantic about it because there is this permanent sense of history. You know, I was talking about the, the, how the French language was popularized or uniformed. Just an interesting anecdote I, I, felt, or I, I felt across was um, um, that one of the ways that the French language was spread was through literature, popular literature. And one of the most popular children's books ever written came out in 1877. Do you know what it's called? It's called... Le Tour de France par deux enfants. So the, the Tour of France by two children. And it's about two children that escape their parents on their bikes. And then they ride around France from uh, the very north to the very south and back and end up in Paris. And it became the most best-selling children's book ever until you know, um, just the pre-war period, which is kind of interesting. And I don't know if it's connected to the tour at all, that story, but um, that was how children learned about other parts of France through the French um, language, including in Brittany. That idea about trying to make sense of or map who you are, where you are in the world and what your broader parameters are, it's so endemic, isn't it? And the tour, whatever routes it takes, I mean, this year looks like a classic to me because if you start in Brit Brittany, to me, is the most logical place to start, isn't it? Let's start in the northwest corner. But the fact is that always going through the Alps, so you're on the kind of um, eastern extremities. They always go down through the uh, the Pyrenees, so you're on the southern extremities. Uh, and then obviously the, the west coast, it, it, there's, a, there's a, a small element of that this year. But that idea about enclo enclosure, but trying to make sense of where you are, is, is natural just and that's one of the i think one of the sort of i don't know almost primordial uh interest in the tour de france is this you know I, I love looking at maps but i love each year looking at which parts diagrammatically they've covered and i like to david's point about um it would be brilliant to have a map of everywhere the tour de france has ever been to you know we get given the stats don't we each year this is the 18th time they've climbed the tourmalet or however many times it is but i love the idea of which parts of, i want i wonder whether the organizers do have this kind of james bond villain style there where literally they've got a map that shows everywhere it's ever been to in diagrammatic form and some years they're going we really do need to look there or we really do need yeah. to go there believe me tim if i asked on twitter somebody would have it done by the end of the day <laughs> Some, Let's put it out. Why, why don't we do yeah, that? Yeah. Or, or we can get our own designer to do it, David. Yeah. Oh, yeah, we're not going to put that on Vitor. He'd be there. He'd hate <laughs> us. Um, talking of closure, um, the genius boy who was taking the mickey out of you two um, at the beginning has realized his computer's at 1% and my charger's uh, at the studio. So <laughs> I'm going to drop out any second. Okay, <laughs> so, that's so all right. So just say you're prepared. We'll, just, we'll, we'll finish this. But before you go... There's nothing an art historian and an anthropologist like than ending on the moral high ground. So thanks for that, David. That's really good.
You're welcome. <laughs> but for you two people from Britain, not Brittany, I just want to play the national anthem of Britain to see if it makes any sense to you. Right? Listen to the melody. Does it make any connection to you? Yeah. It's the Welsh National Anthem sung in a different language, isn't it? It is. <laughs> isn't it interesting? Really, yeah. So, and that's that connection, isn't it, with the Celtic landscape and those, that, that interconnectivity as well as separation and difference. Brilliant. Sounds quite melodic, doesn't it, actually, there? I mean, I'm it so. Does. It does. I mean, and obviously, those would be presumably, uh, I mean, obviously, Breton singers, but also uh, there are, I think there are instruments from that region. Of course, the uh, when it's, it's sung in Wales, uh, it's sung in many different ways. But for me, it's usually the male voice choir and a stadium full of uh, baying Welsh rugby fans um, shouting abuse at the English and then all coming together for this moment of you know, anthemic unity. <laughs> yes. I mean, so I, I guess there is this Celtic culture going up and uh, at, the, at the moment it's also uh, sort of um, building up and growing and being revitalized, I think, by music, uh, arts and you know, um, culture, generally language. They also have their own flag, you probably noticed when you saw it uh, on the street, uh, on Tour de France, this black and white flag, which was it's designed in 1923 and is, is a completely... Construct a construction basically, so there is this sort of sense of pride going on. But now, uh, today, actually, they're not in, they're not in Brittany anymore, are they? they they've, they've changed into a new region. <laughs> I think um, just finishing on the sound that you talked about. I think it'd be nice to talk to David at some stage in the next two or three weeks about the sa the soundscape of France, but also the soundscape from within the peloton, which much which must be fascinating. <laughs> And your yeah, but yeah. flags is again this international ritual that you get, where there are flags from all over the world being waved on the side of the road uh, when they're not taking riders out, and also the the you know the multiplicity of different nationalities within the race that are acknowledged by flags. That, that kind of cacophony of of visual sign and symbolism, I think, is really interesting. Um, but yeah, as you say, we're moving from from Brittany to the Loire Valley, and without uh, uh, giving too much away as to what we might talk about next week. There's amazing contrast, isn't there? I mean, obviously the Loire is an elemental force running, you know, um, east to west in France, but it's a much more manicured landscape, at least on the surface, with all these aristocratic and royal chateaux. But there's more to the Loire than just that, I think. Let's just leave it at that, Tim. So thank you so much for um, 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 trying to make a podcast with the anthropologist here. <laughs> so let's just give the last word to David. David. Deafening silence from the technocrat there. There you go. <laughs> See you Monday. Cheers, <laughs> Michelle. See you Monday. Bye.